Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with a group. Folks, this podcast is brought to you by the Real Leaders Impact Collaborative, our once-a-month virtual impact CEO peer groups who meet to support each other with whatever is keeping them up at night. I joined the group back in September, and if I had to say the one major takeaway that I've received is that to not let things outside business affect your on-court performance. This little change has certainly reflected in our business growth and development. And when our members do well, more lives are transformed. That's what impact is all about. So if you're interested, please email us at info at real-leaders.com. Just say the podcast sent you and you want to speak to someone about the impact collaborative. Again, that's info at real hyphen leaders.com. Enjoy the show. Hey, real leaders. Thanks for clicking on this episode with Ken LaRoe. Now, before we dive in, I just want to make sure you are all aware that on July 28th, we're having on Dr. Jane Goodall to host our free monthly networking events called Meet the Real Leaders. It's a great opportunity to connect with like-minded CEOs to accelerate the flow of ideas, connections, and the ultimate impact. So if that's you, if you want to listen to Dr. Jane Goodall, if you want to connect with other like-minded CEOs, some of which have come on this show, go online to real-leaders.com slash meet, M-E-E-T, to register, to listen and hear and connect with Dr. Jane Goodall. That's it for me. Let's dive into this interview with the real Ken LaRoe. Enjoy. <laughs> I hate the fact that it's taken three iterations for me to get to where I am with Climate First and the realizations of what can actually be done um, because it's it started when I was 39 years old with my first bank. Um, it's very refreshing to me to see a lot of the entrepreneurs today go in and fail in three years and they're back at it. And then they succeed in the successes in a five-year window. With banking, it's a lot more difficult because of the regulatory constraints. Um, but um, I, I don't, I, it, I guess the main advice is just to to remain open-minded and, and be able to pivot quickly. And I, I know that's cliche, but um, I was a Republican from the day I registered at 18 years of age till I was 57 years old. And um, then I decided, well, the Republican party certainly doesn't represent me anymore. I burned my voter's card on video and put it on Facebook and became an instant pariah uh, here in Lake County. Um, but people can change, um, attitudes can change. Um, just 
you just got to keep grinding at it and, and never give up. Never, ever, ever give up. You are listening to the Real Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that message today comes from Ken LaRoe, the founder and CEO of Climate First Bank, who encourages us to never, ever, ever give up. And in today's episode, LaRoe shares the responsibility bankers have to prevent ecological destruction, the competitive advantage of leveraging an incentive beyond profit, and what heartbreak moments influence him to continue the pursuit of clean lending. So without further interruption, may I introduce to you episode 203 with the real Ken LaRoe. Enjoy. Help them out in any way I can. Just hit the link in the chat box right there and apply your company for the Impact Awards. But with that being said, good people, let's get this show on the road here. Here we go now. In five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome, everyone, to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is Ken LaRoe, the founder and CEO of Climate First Bank. Ken, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. It's not every day you get someone from Eustis, Florida on your show. <laughs> I bet it's never happened before. It's never happened before. Tell me what your upbringing was like there in Eustis. Well, I, I was uh, I was born here um, um, eight days um, after my wife was born here in the same hospital, our dads were both born here and played uh, football together in high school. So uh, when I grew up, it was a very rural agrarian uh, community and county. Now it's basically a bedroom community to Orlando and um, explosive growth and uncontrolled growth and, and not good growth and all that kind of stuff. And so I kind of actually miss it when the lakes were really clean and, and full of fish and, um, lots of squirrels to hunt <laughs> and that sort of thing. But yeah, it's definitely not that anymore, unfortunately. Yeah, let's go into that a little bit because I know Eustace is positioned on a few different lakes. Are these saltwater lakes, lakes or are these freshwater lakes? It's all fresh and the county's called Lake County because there's 1,300 named lakes in the county. Mm. But you can actually go into the large chain of lakes and go all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. It, they connect to the St. John's River, and the St. John's River um, comes out in Jacksonville. So you can actually, about five miles from my house, get in a lake in a boat and go all the way to the Atlantic. Hmm. So when you were growing up, were you always outdoor? Were you always fishing, hunting, doing things like that? Pretty much. Yes, pretty much. And my family had uh, um, some small, uh, small-time farmers, and then they had a a family machine shop that my great grandfather started. Um, so it was either, you know, messing around outside or messing around in the machine shop. Hmm. So when you say bad growth, I know Florida is heavily focused on development. New schools are popping up everywhere. New cities are popping up everywhere. Orlando's, I, I would consider a new city in the last couple of years, thanks to the Disney World. What has that done to the environment as well as the species or just the outdoor lifestyle? Yes. Um, so Florida, I just I kind of joke that Florida is a state for developers by developers. Mm -hmm. And um, the 
the growth is is all very poorly planned. Um, we've um, had 22 years of Republican control of our legislature and governor's mansion. So um, all of the environmental standards that were in place have pretty much been gutted or unenforced, one or the other. So if somebody wants to come in and put a high density um, sprawl development, they pretty much get away with it. And there's there's no uh, pretense of any environmental protections going on. So it's it's every nightmare you could think of, you know, water, um, species, uh, uh, habitat destruction, um, that sort of thing. Uh, it, probably the black bear is one of our our biggest examples of a of a species that's really negatively impacted. Um, we have three distinct um, populations of black bears. It's basically the north, central, and south part of the state, and um, it's starting to. It, and they roam very large ranges, and it's it's getting so broken up they can't even roam their normal range, and it's dramatically impacting. And then the Florida panther, which is an endangered species, a dramatically endangered species in crisis. Um, there's so few of them left and so little habitat, they're starting to worry about inbreeding that will ultimately be the demise of the species. So, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty dramatic in Florida. And now the bears and the panthers. Now I'm assuming they, you know, let's think about the food chain, right? Like they're they're hunting fish or small predators that are being wiped out by lots of development. Um, I want to make the analogy to banks and funding and how that supply chain and that money supply also impacts, you know, people up and down the supply chain. What is a, a banker's role in terms of uh, <clears throat> preservation? In terms of uh, economic prosperity for all uh, living organizations. Where were you before maybe you came to this enlightenment and what is driving you now? Well, it's a really good question um, and, uh, you know, opens the door for a little bit of background. Um, I started uh, my first bank in 99 with no pretense of, of anything, you know, values aligned or mission or whatever, um, build it up and sold it in 2006 and just blind luck, great timing, all of that good stuff. Um, got a really high multiple for the bank and um, had a non-compete and my wife and I bought a little mini motorhome and we circumnavigated the country. And before we left, my brother gave me Yvonne Chouinard's autobiography uh, which is uh, the title of his Let My People Go Surfing. And it's a fabulous book. And it was really motivating to me that I needed to do something that did more than just made a bunch of people a bunch of money. I had to do something to get back. And so that led to um, um, my last bank, which I started in, um, we opened in 09, which was First Green Bank. And I had no idea what it meant to be a values-based bank. So the whole time we had the bank, it was a giant learning journey for me and my team, um, which really the turning point, I think, was when I was asked to join the Global Alliance for Banking on Values in 2012. And then I was asked to serve on the board in 2014, which I did for two years. Um, and when I'm in a room with the CEO of Brock Bank in Bangladesh that at the time was doing 8,000 microloans a month, it's pretty darn sobering, you know, it's like, oh my God, I'm not, I'm not doing enough. I'm not worthy to even be here 
you know, in this room with these amazing people doing amazing things. Um, I don't think I answered your question, but um, that's kind of how we got to where we are today. And then I sold first green in 2018, um, got another mini motorhome, circumnavigated the country again and decided a hundred times I was going to do another bank and 101 times that I wasn't going to do another bank. And then finally my wife said, you got to do this or, or you're driving me crazy and I'm, we're going to have to get a divorce. So I, that prompted me to, that was a enough kick in the butt to make me realize that I definitely did have it in me. And I just, and I had to do it. It was all, it was a moral imperative. Um, so we filed in October for our charter for climate first bank. And we open our doors, um, a week from now, June 1st. I love it. I love it. Well, congratulations. And yeah, that, that was a kind of a two part question. I asked you kind of, what is the bank's role in this? And then also, you know, kind of, why did you get into it? And before I you know, let you finish this next question, you know, I was also reading this, this crazy book of mine, you know, that kind of came up and, and in that book of on Chenard, you know, a lot of banks turned them down. You know, who is going to fund this organization who's going to give all their IPs away? Who's going to fund this organization? Who's going to invest loads of money into an organic cotton supply chain? So when it comes to the banker's role in regenerative uh, businesses and companies that want to make a change in the world, how do you see it? It's super, super important. Um, one of our taglines is that uh, change finance to finance change. And um, I didn't originate that. I, I wish I did, but um, it's it's very, very true. And that's kind of the premise of the Global Alliance for Banking on Values is um, um, finance is extremely important, extremely impactful. And the vast majorities of the of banks worldwide aren't addressing anything, whether it's um, Chase being, if I'm not mistaken, the largest financer of, of dirty energy in the world. Um, so it's, you just have to, we've come to the conclusion that you have to address every single aspect of every single thing you do every day. Um, and then there's been a sea change as we've all seen, fortunately in the last five years and for sure in the last couple of years on the ESG front, I mean, you can't pick up the wall street journal without seeing an article about how big ESG is getting and how important. But if you go back and look, the the abbreviation ESG didn't even enter the common vernacular until like the end of 2017. So this is all new, it's all real, it's all big, it's all for us fun, um, for maybe some other banks or other bankers that may be frightening um, is what, you know, what does the future hold? Um, I think we are, so back to the question of what should banks or what can banks do, um, we founded as a Florida Legal Benefits Corporation, um, and that's got requirements and, and other um, requirements that we have to follow. Uh, we are also a, a certified uh, B Labs, B Corp. Right now we're in the provisional stage because you have to actually be open, but they've granted provisional status. Um, we uh, we've joined one percent for the planet already. Um, we hope to participate in the race to zero. Uh, we're looking at our um, scope one, two, and three emissions. Uh, we're we're net zero. 
um, right now will be net zero the day we open and plan to you know stay net zero through a combination of our own power generation and then buying offsets and all of that stuff. Um, so it, it's like I said, you just have to look at every single thing you do from your supply chain to your customers uh, to what you do every day. And and what's the business case for this? Obviously, these are all great things, but at the end of the day, you're focused and you have a I would assume you have a fiduciary responsibility to, you know, make as much money as, as possible and, and doing it the right way, of course. But like, what is the business case for people listening to this out here, for bankers listening to this out here who have never really heard of these concepts? ESG, like you said, still kind of a new word. What's the business case for um, investing in organizations um, with upside, both in the environmental impact as well as financial? Yeah, it's a, well, I think it's a huge business case, and um, I outlined it in, in the business plan that I submitted to the FDIC in the state of Florida. Um, we, I mean, we understand solar financing. We know what everything, we can, most of our folks can look at a house and say, you will need this amount of, of this many panels on your roof and, and can quote the, the rates of production, the, the the cost savings, everything else. Most bankers don't even know what a KW is. Mm. Um, we um, we understand commercial pace. We understand the value in a capital stack. Most bankers don't even know what it is. So I think we've got this huge niche that mm. everybody else doesn't have. They'll, I mean, they'll come slowly. They'll kicking and screaming, I'm sure. Um, and most of my friends and cohorts that are community bankers are great people, but as we all know, they tend to be very conservative, very um, hidebound, don't want to change. And quite frankly, a lot of them don't believe in anthropogenic climate change. So um, you can't just feel like being a member of the Rotary Club is making a difference in your community or in your world. You can't feel like because you bought a pig from a 4-H student at the county fair and got your picture in the paper that that's actually, you know, doing anything for the community. Um, but at first green, we, um, we not only were as deep values based as we thought we could be, which proved to be wrong. We could have been much deeper. Um, but we returned financial performance. It was in the top 10% of all banks in the state of Florida. Mm-hmm. And I intend to do that now. And I believe I did not believe in Milton Friedman's shareholder primacy thesis um that it's it's shareholders that matter more than anything else i kind of started to think he got it right but for all the wrong reasons and i have shareholders that are total trump supporters um that do not believe we have a climate crisis and i've got shareholders that are very strict esg funds and i have a responsibility to all of them Mm. and if i can't make a profit that's in the top quartile, nobody's going to take us seriously anyway. So, I mean, to me, making a profit is part of the whole ESG responsibility. And you found you found this bank off the backs of one of the 2008 recession. Is that right? The first green. The f- the I mean, first, we opened yeah. in, in February of 20, 2009. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so, yeah, we sold first green in 2018. Okay. So um, that was a, a real heartbreaker for me and the community and my coworkers and 
one of the a big reason why I started this one. Um, and part of our investment thesis on this one is to not sell, um, which goes back to the business case, which goes back to investor return. Um, I want to pay dividends with this bank and then as soon as possible, take it public. So we've got liquidity and, um, you know, the ability to, to get market valuation. Huh. Well, hold on one sec. Why was it a heartbreaker? I mean, uh, this is, uh, keep in mind, Kenny, this is something that I was studying, um, in preparation for this. So that makes a lot of sense. This, this is a different bank. Why was it a heartbreaker, uh, to sell that bank? Well, I mean, to sell, um, it was built on the traditional Florida bank entrepreneurial model of you. And hopefully you do that all in five years. So everybody gets a, a quick pop and, and moves on. So we've been at it eight years. The pressures, you got, when are you going to sell this thing? When are you going to sell this thing? I want my return. Mm. Um, and so we ended up selling and it was a very protracted process that shouldn't probably have been for a whole lot of reasons. And we didn't get the return I felt like we should have gotten or deserved because mm. our financial performance was phenomenal. And the bank that acquired us um, said they were going to continue some of our values proposition, and they, they didn't. So that was a, a big letdown. Mm. And then I have all these wonderful coworkers that are either without a job because a bigger bank doesn't need their position or they're not feeling fulfilled if they stayed with the acquiring bank. Hmm. Um, we, we get so many of our coworkers, we get the most quality applicants for every job opening we have because of our values proposition. And these exquisite millennials um, that go to work for more than just a paycheck. And um, I guess that goes back to, again, to the business case, um, Kevin, that you were asking about. We, we, we can recruit the absolute most phenomenal people. Um, I've gotten so many shareholders. We're at 35 million something in escrow right now in capital on a minimum 17 million raise. So we, we more than doubled our minimum. And um, a lot of these investors are here just because of the values proposition. We're getting, I'm getting calls and emails and texts every day of people. When can I open my accounts? When can I open my accounts? I believe in what you believe in. Well, those people aren't going to chase. They're not going to the community bank down the road because, because they don't live their ethos. Mm. So it, I think we've got a niche. We've got customers that nobody else will get. Uh, we've got product products and product lines that nobody else has. And I've been able to raise an incredible amount of money in a pandemic um, that I don't believe I could have done near as well without the values proposition. So let's, let's elaborate on this a little bit because I find this so interesting. The values of this organization, what you guys stand for is definitely attracting not only investors, but good quality workers who are passionate, who are driven. What does that look like when you announce something such as we want to bank the unbanked? We want to uh, invest in organizations that are making a, a slight change to provide, let's say, healthier uh, meals or healthier products in their stores, uh, things that aren't damaging the environment. W what does that do in terms of attracting uh, stakeholders with aligned values? <laughs> well, one thing that comes to mind is 
um, we darn sure better be walking the walk. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of maybe the, the backside of what you were getting at is there's a high level of accountability that goes along with this. Um, but um, I mean, there's another term that's people want to know, people that care want to know where their money sleeps at night. You know, you, you want to know where your money sleeps at night. And my, my millennial daughter wants to know where her money sleeps at night. And um, thank goodness for your generation, um, you, you vote with your pocketbook and you're not going to spend your money where, the, where it's doing evil. Um, and that translates also into the employee side. Did I, was, was that responsive to your question? Or yeah, it was kind of an open-ended question, wasn't it? Um, yeah, I guess I was just curious because banking isn't really like the sexiest or like, you know, position, right? It's not the sexiest job to have in the world. But what I think you're doing here is you're really appealing to the next generation of workers who are proud to work at a bank for kind of what they do. And I was wondering kind of what like the ultimate impact that would have on your engagement, on your productivity and on your financial performance. Wow. Wow. That's powerful. I never thought about the somebody being proud to work for a bank. And I think that definitely I see that with my with my folks. Um, I mean, we probably all wish we could measure. Um, I mean, you can measure productivity on a on a uh, on a factory floor on a production line, you know, making widgets. But how do you measure productivity? with a um, clerical person um, other than and folks it looks like ken's just lagged out on us real quick we we're experiencing a few wi-fi problems earlier before the show i apologize ken looks like he's okay ken's gonna wait to to reconnect and come back on um <clears throat> but while that's happening uh it's it's very interesting because you know i was doing a lot of research prior to this interview um about ken's original bank that he started after the recession in 2008 uh, where he was out competing. There he is. Ken, you're coming back on. Um, I was just giving you a, a, a little, uh, just a little touting there, uh, kind of talking about uh, the studying I was doing prior to this interview about your original bank. Um, but I'm going to let you finish this question because this is kind of where you cut out. Um, you were talking about productivity and how you measure that within your, within your own organization. Then you kind of cut out right then and there. So I'll I'll pause and kind of let you continue that. Sure. So, I, I mean, the issue is how do you measure productivity? We, um, we try in every position. Um, and I think at least my experience at First Green is we have very, very productive people and very tuned in, turned on and, and um, engaged people. And, that, and we have very high customer service scores. Um, come to think of it to close the loop, you know, to go full, full circle. So how to, what is the result of engaged employees or coworkers? It's, it's happy, um, engaged customers, um, that really become 
advocates for the bank. We had customers at First Green, which I'm sure we'll experience even more with Climate First, that um, they called themselves members of the bank, not customers. Mm. So that's a term that's generally reserved for credit unions, which are member-owned nonprofits. And it's like, oh my God, that's the biggest honor we could have ever got. Um, you know, most bankers disdain credit unions and the fact that they don't pay taxes, but they get to do the same products we do. I don't disdain them. Um, I mean, there's there's big merits, but I I love my customers calling themselves members. It's pretty powerful. It's interesting to think about a bank. You know, proud to be a part of a bank. Bank. I'm banking with Climate First. It's interesting to think about uh, from someone, let's say, an entrepreneur uh, who's starting out now. How, how do you help out entrepreneurs, specifically social entrepreneurs, let's say, who are maybe, I mean, traditionally maybe going to just family money, uh, trying to do a different, um, let's say, venture capital fundraises first, and then they kind of go to a bank. What's kind of your philosophy on how you work with entrepreneurs within your community? Well, that's a that's a great question. And as a commercial bank, um, Really, you can't. Um, we have the time-proven, regulatorily approved um, um, bank underwriting standards that mm. have been developing for the last 400 years, and uh, you can't deviate from them, or you will you will certainly get um, whatever range of demerits from the regulators that they hand out. So part of my business thesis for this bank is I want to be able to eventually provide everything from angel to exit. Um, I want to provide a much bigger capital stack than traditional. You walk in, you qualify for bank loan or you don't. Um, and the first way to start is with government guaranteed lending, the SBA, USDA, um, Export Import Bank, those various um, different uh, sources. I'd like to do a, uh, a factoring division. And factoring can be very expensive money, but it can also be a great transition. And I want to have you know, compassionate factoring. I'd like to do an SBIC at some point, which is for second stage companies. Um, so I, I'm I'm started addressing that, and we're starting to put the pieces in place. You know, it'll take some time to layer them all in, but um, I think that's the long term answer to your question. Today, if there's an entrepreneur walking in the door, we can't help. And that's a huge hurdle and it breaks my heart. Right. You know? And that's something you want to change. Right. So you mentioned that the last bank who was heartbreaking to sell and then kind of had, see what happened to it afterward. What's now different about First Climate um, that you can say right now is not going to happen again? Like, how do you ensure that um, when you sell or if you don't sell, that things are going to be different this time around? What are you doing? Well, um, a couple things. Um, we uh, just a whole lot of transparency right up front with the shareholders of do not expect this to sell in five years and get your return. Um, this is the model. It's going to be a built to last hold model. Go public. Now, once we're public, we, it's pretty darn difficult to uh, prevent a a hostile takeover or something from happening, right? I mean, we see that. We've seen that with some really stellar companies that were B Corps that got taken over by VC firms or funds and, and then dropped the, the B, uh, B 
B-Corp status. Um, we're also a legal benefits corporation, which provides a little bit of protections. Um, we're, um, you know, certified B-Corp. Um, just a lot of it is just the executing on the, you know, paying the dividends to pay the investors to wait and then taking the bank public and, and providing that, that element of liquidity and, and marketability. And just for people listening out there too, and correct me if I'm wrong, the only way to make my money back is when you sell that organization. So is that why you felt that pressure originally with First Green, such as early close family and friends, things like that, that were maybe forcing you to, to sell that bank? Yes. And I mean, there are there were options. Of course, we could have tried to turn it into a subchapter S, do a reverse stock split. Um, but that would have been pretty devastating to most of the shareholders. There's no way I was going to do that. We could have tried it. We could have taken it public or tried to go public. And um, that was certainly an option, but the majority of the shareholders didn't want to do that. So it all comes back to, um, you know, what the shareholder expectation is. And we've tried to establish the expectation on the front end with this bank that we're not going to sell. We're going to be built to last. Hmm. So what does one have to think about when you tell investors we are going to go public with this climate bank? What do you have to think about way down the line? Well, I mean, some of this stuff, I mean, thinking about down the line, it's all the, the legal ease. You know, what does it take? What's the process? It's more a process-related um, calculus. But what's shocking me every day, and I just think we've got a tiger by the tail in a very good way, is the whole ESG movement. And I think when we're ready to go public, that we're going to be not only accepted with open arms, we're, we're going to be sought out mm. um, and, and investors will be clamoring to, to get in. Um, that's what I'm feeling right now. And so from a long-term planning perspective is, does that continue? You know, what does that look like uh, three years, four years, five years down the road? Ken, do you like the term ESG? You like the term regenerative investing? You like impact investing? Like what, what are you comfortable with and how do you see your type of portfolio? I mean, I like ESG. I like um, kind of the general categorical um, analysis of it. Um, it. You know, in the old days, they used to say sustainable. Well, is it sustainable? And then if I were to ask, you know, how's your marriage? And you say, well, it's sustainable. I said, well, I know the name of a good divorce lawyer. You know, it's not a, it's not a, a good description. And I'm glad we've kind of gotten away from that. Um, regenerative is, is great, but um, does that encompass everything? Maybe it does. Maybe regenerative governance is, you know, could be a thing. Um, yeah, I'm not really sure. I just know I don't like sustainable. Mm. Well, I think you're spot on with investors increasingly looking for organizations that are good for the planet, such as Beyond Meat. And last week's like Oatly, Oat Milk, uh, that just launched their IPO as well. Um, this, the price is going up. People want to invest in organizations that aren't going to you know, have huge environmental costs because it's a risk. It's a risk for investments nowadays. It's a risk from a legal standpoint as well. 
but it's still a messy middle. It's still kind of undefined. How do you look at social investments? Let's talk about the S for instance. What does a social investment mean to you and how does that look within the organization? Are you looking for specific metrics? Are you looking at the leadership? What does that look like? That is a fantastic question. So my gig is the environment. It always has been since I, as as far back as I can remember, 11 years old, you know, it was like the environment, why are they dumping something in that lake or whatever? Um, And, and, I feel like we have an existential crisis with the climate crisis. And my wife's favorite um, descriptor is um, because nothing else matters. You know, if we don't, if we don't address the existential climate crisis, social issues don't matter. Our social issues are greatly exacerbated. Um, One of our board members, um, 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 Dominic Niarden from Optus Bank in Columbia, South Carolina, is a minority depository institution. It's a black-owned bank. And they are dealing with um, financial inclusion, um, uh, racial equity, all those kind of issues. And it's very hard. And so my philosophy is we try to really get the climate piece figured out. We try to really address the E part of ESG. We don't do any harm on the social side, but tackling low to moderate income banking is a big pro- a big prog- process, big project. Um, it's very difficult. We tried it first green and I mean, we fought and fought, fought with it for 18 months, 24 months, just could never get it off the ground or get it to work. Mm. So um, to me, a, a social there's all kinds of social deals we can do, if you will, whether it's, it's banking a, a nonprofit or doing a, a loan for um, housing for veterans. You know, there's a, there's a lot of different places we can touch, but to go out and offer a product for the unbanked and underbanked, we are for sure not going to do that, you know, right now. Mm. So let's take that example with uh, hiring or employing veterans. What are you looking for specifically? Is that a byproduct of their organization? Or if they were to remove that from their organization, would they be the same type of company with the same type of competitive advantage? Is there specific little things, values, leadership, models that you're looking for in organizations that kind of fit your bill? We we love B Corps. I mean, that's a that's an easy one. Um, if you've looked at the statistics for B Corps in Florida, we hardly have any. It's really, really sad um, what's, you know, what's going on in Florida. The, it's a real difficult thing, Kevin, especially in Central Florida, because we're, you know, um, my friend Kat Taylor told me that I need to just keep my chin up because we're um, missionaries in the jungle here in Central Florida. It's a lot easier when you're in San Francisco sure. um, to do really deep value stuff. Um, so would we bank the guy down the road that's got an auto repair shop that doesn't give a flip about, um, you know, the, the climate crisis? Uh, yes. You know, I, I think we would if, if we found out that he was improperly disposing of chemicals, it would freak us out. Mm. You know, I don't know what you can do once the loan's made or whatever, but, um, and you know, would we bank the, 
the young veterinarian who's building herself a new office building. And we say, well, we'd really like you to do LEED certified. And she says, no, um, we'd still do the building for her. Mm -hmm. um, but conversely, we have a negative screen. You know, we're not, we won't do dirty energy. We won't do extractive industries. Um, we won't do porn, you know, um, and that's kind of easy to just have a black and white thing but then there's all kinds of slippery slopes like do you do i know some values-based banks that it's a hard line they will not do fast food they won't they won't do they won't finance a fast food restaurant well does that mean you're not going to finance a chipotle or you're not going to mm. finance an evos um that's serving quality food in a fast food manner mm. you know I, I don't know it's it there really is a lot of gray areas. What pushback do you get from other investors or people of equity in the organization? I mean, do they say like, let's take that Chipotle example. It's like, these are human beings, you know, that just need some funding to get through to the next round during this recession. I mean, are there some like moral challenges that you face along this journey? There has, uh, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, during the capital raise a whole lot and then already, we're approving loans and um, we had one today that we took to the full board because of the slippery slope nature is a convenience store. And um, I did a lot of convenience stores at first green. We have a huge network of, of convenience store operators that are our customers in the Indian American community. And this was a store that's owned by three millennial Indians. So they're second generation immigrants. And it's a brand new store, purpose built. It's got a, a restaurant in the store. It's kind of a Wawa, you know, a big multi, multi pump store. And we told them we don't do convenience stores unless you'll cover it with solar and put an electric vehicle charging station. Mm. And these guys said, perfect. We know we're not going to be pumping gas 20 years from now. This is fantastic. This will help with the transition. And we're going, yes, nice. this is exactly what we were wanting to do. And then I had a number of my coworkers say, you know, time out. I don't like this at all. Um, we're financing the last mile of dirty energy. Um, you know, what are we thinking? And we had a really, really robust board discussion um, about it today. And, and one of my board members is absolutely adamant that we don't do it. So it's, it's really interesting. I loved it. It's, it's a very stressful thing, you know, this early on, but this early on is when we need to be addressing this stuff. Hmm. And how closely do you look into solar, into wind, into alternative energies? Um, for instance, let's just say like, like wind turbines, for instance. I heard actually they do kill a lot of animals, a lot of birds, things like that. I mean, are those ever discussions that you guys have or are you all just solely focused on alternative renewable energies are good let's say fossil fuels are, are bad and we'll just check the box on that every single thing like you just said if we know about it i mean you, you always there are always the things you don't know that you don't know right. um but if we know and it's brought to our attention or somebody figures something out we address it and i think I, you know, I just, I wish naysayers could sit in in our board meetings. I wish they could sit in in our management meetings and see how absolutely deadly serious we take this stuff. Um, a, another perfect example is um, those stupid window envelopes. 
windows that you get your bills in and it's got the plastic panel in it. And it's like, well, that fouls the whole recycle process for paper. And my wife and I cut those plastic things out. So I charged my operations people. I said, we will not send out envelopes with plastic in the windows. Mm. And we're finding out we can't control it. There's nothing we can do. The vendor we use is runs 30 banks in a day, runs all their stuff. And we're just a little block in their production line. They can't come in and say, okay, we're going to put a thousand window envelopes without plastic. And they refuse to change their whole production to without plastic. So it's like, you know, it's mind-numbingly little things that you just have to fight and fight and fight and fight. And, and I'm thinking about this in terms of like innovation and, and your own supply chain. When you're faced with that obstacle, how do you have a conversation to make and transition to a more environmentally friendly business model, environmentally friendly supply chain? You mean you mentioned Yvonne Chouinard. That was the obstacle. Non-organic uh, dyes going into the waste streams. Through those conversations, they had to cut down their own or non-organic suppliers. When you're faced with an obstacle like that, what's your approach? <laughs> oh my goodness! Um, <laughs> I, you know, I wish it was formulaic. Um, I wish there was something that I could say, okay, I got to plug it in, and then the, at the, the end of it, we're going to have an output um, because everything is dramatically, dramatically different. Um, as an example, I was in this whole discussion on the convenience store. I said, because at First Green Bank, we were the, the first and only bank in the state of Florida that banked the Florida cannabis industry. Mm. And, you know, we went really went out on a limb to do it. And part of it was that my wife suffered a traumatic brain injury um, in a bicycle crash, and she had a seizure disorder. And we were able to completely cure the seizures with cannabis. Mm. So I was, had a really, really very strong opinion and very emotive opinion that the cannabis need to be legalized. We need to bank it. And when it was became legalized, um, I had a really long discussion with my board. One of my board members is a radiation oncologist. He said, this cannabis saves my patients. Um, it, it cures their nausea on and on and on. Um, and so we banked the industry mm. and we, you know, like I said, we were the first and only bank. Well, we would bank the cannabis industry today if we were allowed under the three year, you know, startup bank period, which we're not, um, in a nanosecond, we would bank the cannabis industry, but it is a huge energy hog. It is, it's the worst, most horrid energy hog. They use the most disgusting, horrid chemicals to process it. In the state of Florida, the G part of ESG doesn't even exist. Right. I mean, we got one of the most corrupt states in the country. So if you've got a license, you're not checking the G part. <laughs> so there's nothing on ESG that would warrant us banking the cannabis industry, but we do it all day long because it helps the patient. Mm. Right. So every single thing, I think, is a, a totally separate calculus. Interesting. So. If we can't get, I mean, it's almost impossible to have a business that doesn't have any external costs, environment 
costs, right? If you can't fully do good, like what is your perspective from a business case? That's why I want to get break this down to today. It is a business case. Not only are you helping patients, but there's tremendous upside in the cannabis industry, let's say. What are your thoughts for people listening to this to help them understand that it's not just to do good, but it's also to do a little bit more good than we were doing and also generate profits for the long term? Well, I tell people I'm a rabid environmentalist, but I'm a rabid capitalist also. Mm. And that came to me when I was giving a talk somewhere and I said, well, I'm a rabid environmentalist and probably 40% of the room start rolling their eyes and shooting me birds and everything right, else. Right. And so then I said, well, I'm a rabid capitalist too. And, and I am, I mean, it's fun. <laughs> I went to business school because I just really, I'm a deal junkie. You know, I, I love doing deals. I love making money. Um, I don't believe that you have to sacrifice the profit side for the, to do good. I really don't believe that. Mm -hmm. um, there are those that do. Um, Yvonne Chouinard is in a very unique and fortuitous position that um, he and his wife own 100% of the company. So they can do whatever they want. And, and maybe they do sacrifice profit for good because it's their decision. Mm -hmm. um, but I have shareholders to report to. I have a fiduciary responsibility. And, you know, quite honestly, I want my 83-year-old dad to get a lot of financial benefit out of his ownership of Climate First Bank. Um, that, again, I don't know if I answered the question, but somebody said that they love my new hairdo, but I, I need to show this. That this, is the, uh, this is the COVID tail oh, that, yeah. uh, that that's, I've been growing over the last year. So um, I love it. Yeah. Hey, we've been living inside. I, I shaved this morning. You should have seen me last weekend. I, I've been growing out the beard, been growing out the hair, man. It's, it's all good when you're indoors. Um, personal and business life cycles. That's something that I was thinking about when I was watching your interviews because I was like, oh, interesting. Like There is a parallel between personal life cycles, pe what people go through, their investment into their organization, their purpose, and how things just change. We're just people. And also how the business changes, how many life cycles it has to go through before it's ready for investment. What would be your advice to entrepreneurs listening to this, to people that are growing their own organizations when it comes to both a personal and business level? Well, <laughs> I hate the fact that it's taken three iterations for me to get to where I am with Climate First and the realizations of what can actually be done um, because it's, it started when I was 39 years old with my first bank. Um, it's very refreshing to me to see a lot of the entrepreneurs today go in and fail in three years and they're back at it and then they succeed in the successes in a five-year window. With banking, it's a lot more difficult because of the regulatory constraints. Um, but, um, I don't, I, it, I guess the main advice is just to, to remain open-minded and, and be able to pivot quickly. And I, I know that's cliche, but um, I was a Republican from the day I registered at 18 years of age till I was 57 years old. And um, then I decided, well, the Republican party certainly doesn't represent me anymore. I burned my 
voters card on video and put it on Facebook and became an instant pariah uh, here in Lake County. Um, but people can change, um, attitudes can change. Um, you just, you just got to keep grinding at it and, and never give up, never, ever, ever give up. It, now, has that kind of been your principle, your philosophy throughout business? I mean, I, I just keep thinking about that scenario where you go a circum kind of navigate, circumnavigate, you travel across the United States, you know, in a car, you got this book and you're kind of picking up on a, on a different, couple different cues as we all did during COVID, right? Something changes, you know, what have you learned about business through all of these years of experience that you would, you can, you can rest on, you know, you, you can go to sleep at night and say, you know what, this is what business is. This is what I believe in. And this is why I do what I do. Well, again, it's a, the whole cliche. You can, um, you can do well by doing good. You can do good by doing well. Um, you don't have to compromise. You don't have to compromise your values ever um, to, to succeed at whatever it is. I think that would probably be the, the biggest word of advice. Um, and then just never, ever, ever give up. Do you think people have a hard time with that? a hard time with going against their values, a hard time with understanding what their values are. And why don't you think we teach that more? I do think people have a hard time, especially understanding what their values are, or who they are. Um, and I think it's gotten much, much worse with the constant onslaught of malinformation um, through all the various sources. Um, it's the whole conundrum or the whole disbelief of saying, how does the the engineer next door still have Trump signs up in his yard. Um, I mean, these are not, these are very intelligent people, but something's going on at a deep cognitive level that I'm not sure that we understand. Um, so to your point, I don't know that people understand who they are or, or maybe even what they should be. What type of uncompromising values do you say you have? Um, to do the right thing. And again, that's a very, very global um, construct, I think, but it's to do the right thing in, in everything I do. Is there any way that you've strengthened that over time? Do you reflect at all? Do you think at all? Are you challenged with different questions? Like how do you refine and strengthen your uncompromising values? Yeah, holy smokes. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like I um, I keep telling myself, why do I have to be 63 years old to get schooled in this stuff? And uh, a lot of it is um, it's just pure, raw human um, humanness, human communication and, and being able to um, be self-effacing and, and realize that maybe you're not right. And I dang sure wasn't that person at 40. And I dang sure wasn't that person at 30. And some would say I'm not now. Um, but I do believe I'm, I'm getting better and better and better and more self-aware all the time. Mm. And maybe if there was one, one hyphenated word, it's self-aware. Mm. Uh, maybe that's the key is just try to concentrate on self-awareness all the time. Well, I think you are very self-aware. I think you do have a lot of, a lot of humility 
and obviously you're a big believer in honesty and i think that's what is what is real ken so we'll we'll kind of wrap this one up is what is your definition of a real leader well i i i didn't hadn't thought about that question and i don't want to be cliche you know um to me for for me the definition of me being a real leader is that I will lead the troops into battle. I would not expect them to do something I wouldn't do. I'm going to be right up in the front with them. That would be it. Ken, simply put, I love it. Thank you so much for coming on this show today. It was very inspiring. I love your story, and I just hope the best for everyone at Climate First Bank. For Ken LaRoe, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, lead your troops in the battle. And always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Ken. Thank you. All right, and thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast with Ken LaRoe. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We want to see some questions. And, folks, if you want to hear the rest of Ken's interview and answers from guest questions, well, you have to be a part of our free community where you can unlock access to live interviews and ask the guests your direct questions after the show. All you have to do is either click the link in the description, which is the Crowdcast link, slash ken Leroux, or go online to reallyers.com slash podcast and click on any upcoming interview to attend the show live. Also, for all of the CEOs, principals, presidents, decision makers out there, well, do we have the event for you? On July 28th, we are having the late and great Dr. Jane Goodall come on for our free monthly networking event called Meet the Real Leaders, folks. We launched this back in February, and we are inviting all CEOs of Impact to come on and connect with like-minded CEOs to accelerate the flow of ideas and connections to create the ultimate impact And of course, who doesn't love learning from Dr. Jane Goodall? So if that's you, again, folks, go online to real-leaders.com slash meet, that's M-E-E-T, meet, to register for the upcoming event in July. And also, if you are an Apple Podcast listener, please help this show out so we can continue to have more influential guests on like Ken LaRoe by leaving us a review. Let us know what you think and how we can improve this show. And if that's you, if that's you who wants to come on this show, email me directly at b at real-leaders.com. That's b-e at real-leaders.com. That's it for me. Thanks for being a leader and stay tuned for the next episode. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. And before we go today, I just want to make sure that you are all aware that we have now launched our new Real Leaders membership. If you want to get access to all of Real Leaders Magazine, private member-only events, and free courses online, hit the link in the show notes and enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive 20% off a 100 dollar a year subscription hit the link in the show notes 
entering coupon code PODCAST20 to receive access to all of Real Leaders to get you to the next level. Thanks for listening to this episode, and always keep it real.